Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. It's hard right now to avoid the headlines like rental prices are skyrocketing, mortgage stress hits record high, Australian rental crisis set to worsen. Most people will rent in their lifetime and many of them would say that it's more challenging now than it's ever been. But not only is renting financially stressful, it can also be legally confusing and sometimes even downright scary. Can you ever negotiate a rent increase? Should you take your landlord to a tribunal? And can they retaliate if you do? On today's episode, we're looking at the rights of tenants and unpacking some of the most common legal issues that you might face while renting. To help, I'm joined by Grant Arbuthnot, the Principal Solicitor of the Tenants' Union of New South Wales. Grant, I want to break this episode down into a couple of key areas that I think almost everybody can relate to these days. So first of all, I want to start with the one that's on everyone's minds, and that is rent increases. Firstly, does a tenant legally have to agree to a rent increase? It's not a matter of agreeing. If proper notice is given, then rent increases happen by operation of law. But you can challenge a rent increase by applying to the tribunal for an order that it is excessive. Those applications are usually not successful. Firstly, let's establish some ground rules. How often can a landlord increase the rent? In a periodic agreement, it's limited to once a year. In a long fixed term, so that's two years or greater, once a year, but it's not limited in a short fixed term if the rent increases are written into the agreement from the beginning. A short-term one is uh, less than two years. And they can, at any given time in that two years, they could say, hey, next month the rent is $20 a week higher. No, it has to be set up at the beginning when the agreement is made and it's done by additional terms in the agreement itself that tell you how much the rent is going to increase and on what date. Do they have to give any justification for that rent increase? But what are some of the reasons that people increase the rent? There's no requirement to give reasons, but the usual discussion is around an increase in outgoings. So that's we've repainted, we've put air conditioning in, or is it just I can get more for this property, therefore I'm going to increase the rent? It's got to do with, you know, cost of maintenance sometimes. You know, a tenant will ask for repairs and get repairs, and then get a notice of rent increase. But at the moment, what the market will bear is sky high. So landlords are putting the rent up in order to take more money. Is there ever a ground that you could dispute that increase? So obviously, so many of us have stories either from our own experience or those of our loved ones of people who are getting increases to say it's going up by $100 a week. Is there ever a cap on on that limit? There's no cap in the legislation, but there is a process where you apply to the tribunal and you present evidence about the premises 
and like premises in the same area and try to convince the tribunal that the increase is excessive and so they should order that the rent not be above a lower amount for up to 12 months. How successful could someone be if they receive a rent increase and they go to their landlord and say, I can't afford this, it's too much? There's a mechanism in the Act for a lesser increase to commence on the same date. So you can negotiate a lower amount, but it doesn't happen very often because there's a strong power imbalance between landlords and tenants. It's very often a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. People can apply for a rent reduction, but how often is that ever accepted? Some people manage to negotiate rent reductions when things have gone wrong and you can't use a room, for example. If a tree falls on the back of the house and one of the bedrooms is not usable for a while, landlords and tenants negotiate a rent reduction on that basis. If you can't negotiate it, then the tenant can apply to the tribunal and those applications are reasonably successful. Are there ever instances where a real estate agent will do this on behalf of the landlord and there's maybe a chance that the landlord is not even aware that this rent increase is being pushed for? We have heard of cases where the landlord has been unaware of a rent increase notice issued by their agent, yes. If you receive an increased rent and you feel, okay, obviously I have to accept this, and you start to fall behind, how many payments could you miss or start to fall behind before you could be served an eviction notice? Or can can it be used to evict you? Yes, it can. You're in breach of the contract as soon as you're one day behind, but the landlord can't give a notice of termination until you're 14 days behind. And when they give that termination, are there grounds in that to say, okay, well, if I can pay it in the next couple of days this is null and void or or could a landlord push forward with evicting you even if you manage to scramble and and pay your overdue rent? There's a system in the Residential Tenancies Act that we call the pay-to-stay system and it allows tenants to avoid termination of the agreement by paying all the rent owing and it works from the moment you're given the notice of termination right up to the moment that the sheriff locks you out. You've spoken about the two-week period of where your rent can fall into arrears. A lot of people are paid fortnightly. What if it's coming down to that day difference? Like what what if there is an issue with meeting in that two-week period, knowing that a lot of people are pretty much bang on waiting to get paid to then clear all their bills on payday? That does create difficulties for people. And if the tribunal finds you've frequently failed to pay rent on time, then they can turn off the pay-to-stay system and make termination orders and you cannot save that tenancy by paying all the rent owing. Obviously, some of these endings to leases can be pretty intense and, and they're ending badly. What impact can that have on a tenant's future chances of getting a new property? Well, there's two channels that a prospective tenant should be aware of for an agent or landlord to find out about their history. One is residential tenancy databases, which are private for-profit organisations that trade in information about tenants, and they're regulated to an extent by the Tenancies Act, and there's only two grounds for which you could be listed on a database. One is that you were evicted for breach of contract, so that covers rent arrears, 
and the other is that at termination of your agreement, you owe more money than the bond. Oh, okay. So that's you've fallen very, very far behind. Well, yes, but it covers things like you know possible liabilities for cleaning or damage to the premises. So if you have a rent situation where it got a little messy and complicated towards the end, I mean, I suppose messy in a figurative sense, not messy as in you trashed the place, but you, you moved out, your debts are, are clear for that property, you can pretty much start afresh and there shouldn't be any impact on you getting a new lease. There still can be because the other channel is communication between agents and landlords so that when you fill out an application, you give details of where you last rented and who the landlord was or who the agent was. And what happens in communication, say, between agents is unregulated and you nearly never find out what happens. So it's possible for you to not be listed on a database yet have difficulty because the last agent you rented through is not helping you when they get inquiries from the next agent you apply to. It's like a bad job reference or something like that. Yes. Does that follow you wherever you go? If I then move into state, do I have a clean slate? No, it follows you all around Australia and New Zealand with one of the larger databases. And there have been occasional problems with mistaken identity that somebody in Australia had the same name as somebody who was listed in New Zealand and it caused problems for them. If you have applied to the tribunal to avoid an eviction on compassionate grounds because you're struggling to find a new property, does something like that go on the database and follow you for future tenancies? There's no compassionate grounds application you can make to stave off an eviction. The landlord applies to the tribunal and the tribunal, if they're going to evict you, will have to decide the date. And so it's then that you plead your circumstances on that balance of relative hardship. Would something like difficulty finding a new place to live be an acceptable reason for the tribunal to delay eviction? Because right now the demand for rentals is extreme and the eviction period is only, what, 28 days? In a periodic agreement, it's 90 days unless there are grounds. And at the end of a fixed term, it's 30 days from the landlord. Realistically, it's not actually all that long to find a new property. If you are told to move out and you can provide evidence of properties that you've applied for, inspections that you're going to, you are doing everything you can to find new accommodation. Is there any grace period that you could be allowed to stay until you secure a new home? There's not a rule about a grace period. What happens is that you don't move out and the landlord then applies to the tribunal and the tribunal, if they decide to evict you, will also have to decide on a possession date. So that's the day you have to give the premises back to the landlord or agent. That's decided on what's called the balance of relative hardship between the parties. So the landlord's circumstances and the tenant's circumstances are taken into account in determining a date for possession and being able to prove to the tribunal with documentary evidence that you've been house hunting and it's extremely difficult can help the tribunal in deciding on that date. What's the full name for the tribunal for people who may not know? It's the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, commonly known as NCAT. 
What is the process of of someone going to NCAT and can people go it alone or is it recommended that they get legal advice before going to NCAT? It's a good idea to get advice. Uh, you don't have to get advice from a solicitor. There are tenant services funded in New South Wales through the Department of Fair Trading and so there are about 80 tenants advocates across the state who provide lots of telephone advice and other assistance depending on somebody's need and abilities. So, yes, certainly get advice from a tenants advice service, but tribunal's primary rule is that people represent themselves. You have to have the tribunal's permission or leave to have somebody represent you. That seems like it's a pretty even playing field then as well if people sort of get to turn up and present their own case and can't be overwhelmed by someone coming in with sort of very high-level legal representation. It has that that equality factor, but as between tenants and real estate agents, there's a, a bit of an imbalance because the real estate agents are repeat players and they have experience in the tribunal quite often. If someone decides to take their case to the tribunal and they turn up on that morning, what is that scene going to look like for them? Does the tribunal look like a courtroom? Is there a judge? Like, what does that look like? Set that scene for us. In the venues that the tribunal actually controls, it looks like a simple courtroom with, you know, two tables for parties to sit at and a chair for witnesses and uh, the tribunal member will sit behind a bench But in other venues, particularly out in the country, they quite often use local courts, but they have also used other places like bowling clubs and community centres. The tribunal has sat under a tree in a motel room. They've done all sorts of different places. It's like a magic room. You can just like click your fingers and it appears. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) So the tribunal is, is less formal but it has some similarities to the progress of civil matters in courts. You know, the tribunal will want to hear from the applicant first and hear their evidence, and then they will want to hear evidence from the respondent and then go back to the applicant for their reasons why, based on the evidence, they should get the result they've applied for, and then hearing from the other side, the respondent, about why the applicant shouldn't get their reasons. So it's it's adversarial and the lack of formality allows tribunal members to assist the parties to present their cases because tribunal members can inform themselves as they see fit and that means they can ask questions. It's not like a courtroom where a judge will let the lawyers run the case before them. Are there rules around rebuttal and things like that? So say if I'm sitting there and I'm a tenant and then I hear the agent saying stuff and I'm like, that's not true. If I cut in, is that bad? Should I not cut in? Can you rebut as you go along? Yes, you shouldn't interrupt the other party's evidence. You should be given a chance to rebut afterwards and you can ask the member when that evidence is finished to hear from you again And the tribunal has very broad discretion about procedure. And what's good procedure, of course, varies from tribunal member to tribunal member. They have different views. But the object of the exercise is to decide the thing on the best information available and on the substance of the matter rather than on any tricky procedural points. What would be your couple of 
dot points of advice for someone who is wanting to take their case to NCAT in terms of how they present their case, how they turn up at the tribunal? Are there a couple of high-level pieces of advice you could give someone? Yes. Documentary evidence is the best evidence because the tribunal can't really help you if you're saying A and the agent is saying not A, then you need something to corroborate your version of events and documentary evidence is the best thing. If you're the applicant, then you should be bringing the tenancy agreement itself. That gets you into the jurisdiction. And then the most common thing tenants are after is repairs. So photographs, a quote, if you can get them for free, is really helpful. And all the correspondence and email is a a boon for tenants because an awful lot of what used to happen on the phone now happens in email and you can prove it. Keep all your receipts. Yes. Is there a minimum rental standard that landlords have to adhere to in terms of the condition of a property? Yes. The standard broadly stated in the Act is habitable and in reasonable condition. And there's some detail in the Act for what habitable means. And it talks about having running water and ventilation, washing facilities with privacy. So it's not a very high standard, but it's certainly clearer than it was before that was added to the Act. And there's no, when it comes to reasonable, that's the same thing again. It's just running water, bit of privacy, good ventilation. Well, reasonable condition is based on the prospective life of the premises and the rent being paid and how the premises were at the beginning, though that's not conclusive. What are some of the most common issues that you see in terms of rental standards? Not repairing is the most popular breach of contract by landlords. The standards vary from the top of the market to the bottom of the market, but repair is the problem. I spoke a few years ago to a guy who was paying $8,000 a week rent. Wow, must have been a nice place. palatial premises. However, his problem was getting repairs done. What things go wrong in an $8,000 a week property? Probably expensive things. I don't recall the particular details. Gilded fittings or something. (laughs) What are some of the worst examples you've seen of of a condition of a property? An oven that doesn't work. The landlord says, oh, you don't cook much, doesn't matter. I've had that happen, actually. Other things, uh, leaking roofs and mould all over the ceiling and leaking roofs and the ceiling falling in on somebody's bed. That also happened at a place I lived in. Honestly, it was like a hovel. So So, (laughs) ceiling fell in, there was black mould, and the oven stopped working. Congratulations. Yep, got the trifecta. It was a share house, I'll bet. (laughs) Yes, it was. Yes. (laughs) But it it was a battle. Like, it was a real battle. One, the issue with the ceiling falling in was that it was in a hallway. So they said, well, it's not your bedroom. It's not going to fall on your head. won't kill you. Even in the bottom of the market, I would argue that that's not reasonable condition. No, particularly like things like black mould. Like there's there's a huge health risk of things like black mould or any form of mould being in a property. Yes, and mould has been a serious problem since we're coming out of uh, La Nina. Mm. Everything has been wetter. Yeah, nightmare. Can a tenant ever effectively go on strike and refuse to pay rent until what they want is fixed? People do. But it's a very bad idea. In New South Wales, what happens is you get evicted for not paying the rent 
and the issue about which you were striking just isn't dealt with. If, say, you go through these situations and most of us have been in this situation where you say, hey, this has happened, can you please get someone in to fix it? Then it becomes a bit of a to and fro about whether it's urgent or serious. Where can you go when you're sort of hitting that breaking point point? you're like, I just want this thing to get replaced or fixed? There's a couple of routes you can take. But the first thing is always make a written demand for the landlord to perform the contract by repairing the premises. Then if they don't comply, you can complain to the Office of Fair Trading and they have a power to make what are called rectification orders where the problem is reducing the habitability of the premises. If that doesn't work or if you choose otherwise, you can apply to the tribunal for orders that the repairs be done and you can also apply for compensation if you'd suffered loss and you can apply for rent reduction if the failure to repair has reduced the amenity of the place. So could that be an ongoing rent reduction or could you be looking more at saying this has been happening for the past four weeks? I don't think we should be paying rent for these four weeks or we should be paying a significantly reduced amount of rent. Rent reduction as a remedy can span 12 months and it can be in the past and in the future as well as the present. Do you ever see tenants not reporting damage out of a fear of eviction? Yes. Tenants quite often don't want to rock the boat and when they find that uh, the landlord doesn't want to repair, then they decide they don't want to ask for repairs because they might find themselves with a no-grounds termination notice. That's got a sting in the tail because it's actually a contract obligation to tell your landlord about the need for repairs. And you can be liable for the increase in cost when the repair need gets greater over time. This is a really good point to pick up on because I wanted to ask about this, that obviously a lot of the examples I've been using previously have been things that have gone wrong with the property that tend to just be more wear and tear, ageing, Lenina, the works. But obviously, you know, things can happen. Often people are young in share houses. You know, damage can be done and it is your fault or the fault of someone in the property. What can happen if you just try and get it fixed quietly and you don't tell the landlord? Well, you've breached the contract in a couple of ways. We recommend that people don't do or procure their own repairs unless they have a written agreement with the landlord that they shall do that because you can end up in another dispute about the quality of the work and have to pay for it twice. Have you seen instances where people have gotten into trouble and faced eviction because a repair has gone badly and they haven't told the landlord about it? Yes, and it usually gets picked up when the agent comes to inspect the place. The ground there for termination of the agreement is going to be breach of the contract and it's going to be by damaging the premises rather than focusing on the failure to report it. If you have been responsible for damaging a property and you have done a DIY job and you've actually done a pretty good job and you have patched it up and you've moved out and you've gotten your bond back but subsequently your DIY skills have come unstuck and it's gone wrong and what you've done has been discovered, can there be a repercussion for you? There can be because from the date that the bond is paid out, the landlord still has six months during which they can apply to the tribunal about the bond. Now, because it's paid out, 
the remedy is not an order that the bond board shall pay money to people. It is an order that the tenant shall pay money to the landlord. It's a problem right across the legal system that some people don't pay. When something needs to be repaired in a rental property and the landlord might come and say, this quote, it's going to cost hundreds of dollars, it's so expensive, but you as a tenant have gone and found a quote or found an option that could get that work done for considerably cheaper, could you force them to go with the person that you have found who can do it for cheaper? You can't compel, as a tenant, you can't compel the landlord to use your chosen repairer, but it could have an effect on the size of the money order or the size of the bond portion that the landlord can achieve at the tribunal because one of the things the tribunal will take into account is mitigation of loss so that a landlord can't spend more than they need to to backfill the tenant's liability. So if you had cheap brass taps and the landlord is replacing them with very tricky mixer taps, then the tribunal is not going to make a money order for the whole amount. I wanted to quickly ask about the process of inspection and can a landlord ever just turn up at the house or the agent just turn up at the house to conduct that inspection? In order to turn up without notice, they need to have a genuine belief that there's an emergency happening. For an inspection, the notice period is seven days and it has to be in writing. For some other things, uh, there are shorter notices and they don't have to be in writing, but inspections is seven days. What about people who make a number of repair requests? Do the landlords ever then just get annoyed with fielding all these requests and just say, you know what, here's an eviction notice, move out? Yes, that happens and it's called retaliatory eviction and there's a mechanism in the Act. You can apply to the tribunal for an order that the notice of termination is void because it was retaliatory. However... There's always a however. (laughs) Yes, A study we did of reported tribunal decisions uh, told us very clearly that nine out of 10 of those applications fail. Is it because it's very hard to prove that something is retaliatory or that it's just that the landlord could say, no, 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 I'm selling the property, I'm I'm, I'm giving this notice for another reason? Yes, it's that, that mental element is hard to prove and the tribunal has discretion. It can find that the notice was retaliatory and not give you the remedy anyway. A lot of people now are receiving eviction notices because landlords want to sell. You know, interest rates are going up for a lot of people if they've got an investment property. The cost with rising interest rates is that it's it's too much money, so they want to sell. What does a landlord have to demonstrate in order to give an eviction notice to a tenant to move out because they're selling the property? They have to have already exchanged contracts for sale for vacant possession And the tenancy has to be periodic, not a fixed term. Because that's if someone bought the house and you were on a fixed term lease, that person buying the house is sort of stuck with the tenants for the remaining term of their lease. Is that right? Yes. The tenant gets a new landlord. You come with the house? Yes. If your landlord says, I'm selling the house, so you've, you know, got a set amount of time to move out, and you look on real estate websites and you can't find the house... Would you be entitled to make any questions or ask for proof that they're selling the house? There's a requirement that they give you notice that they're going to advertise the house for sale. 
before they bring around the first prospective purchases. But the requirement for the notice really is that the contracts have been exchanged for vacant possession. I've only seen one of those that went strangely wrong where when it got to the tribunal, the document was not a contract for sale. It was something called a put option. Oh, what's a put option? It was an option to purchase the premises rather than a contract for sale. It didn't have the kind of proper legal binding nature of a proper contract for sale. Yes. Have you ever seen instances of attempted sabotage of a sale, by which I mean there's an inspection for people to come in to look at buying the property and a tenant has behaved in a way to try and deter any potential buyer from moving forward with trying to buy this house? A colleague of mine once suggested that you could do that by declaring family nude day. (laughs) I am aware of one case where when the agent and the prospective purchasers turned up, the house was wall to wall with people eating and drinking, the the tenant having thrown a champagne breakfast. Oh, that's a bit fancy. The agent was then willing to negotiate with the tenant about times for inspections, which was what was going wrong in the first place. So the champagne breakfast protest sort of worked. Yes. (laughs) There's a lesson. In that particular case. (laughs) Grant, often it can be just as hard dealing with an agent as it is dealing with the landlord. How often do you speak with people in your role who are having major problems with the real estate agent, not so much the landlord? Quite often, particularly about repairs, and sometimes it's the agent who's the blockage And sometimes the agent is doing what they should and the landlord is the blockage. It's important for people to realise that it's lawful to go around an agent if you can find the landlord. Oh, okay. How how could you do that? Well, quite often agents don't give you contact details, but you can find people. I occasionally find landlords in the white pages of the telephone book, but then you can also find them through the internet. Um, Social media? Sometimes, yes. Is it legal if you found your landlord on Instagram and you took a whole bunch of photos of an issue that you're having with the property and you just messaged them and said, hey, like, look at this hole in the wall, can you come and fix it? Would that be breaking any rules? Is it overstepping? No, it's legal to go around the agent to the landlord and some landlords will go, oh dear, let's do something about that. And some landlords will go, get out of my face, talk to the agent. Just really depends on who you get, isn't it? Are there options that tenants can explore to avoid going to NCAT if they have they've run into issues, I would say mostly with repairs or rent increases? Is there any way to, to get this resolved without going to the tribunal? Yes, there's the fair trading system where they can, in the end, make rectification orders. There's also the option of negotiating yourself and If people are not happy to go to a tribunal, they might be happy to go into a mediation so they could go to the community justice centres and ask them to offer the landlord a mediation with the tenant. At the Tenants' Union, do you have a lot of people contacting you who are looking for that legal advice and legal education as to understand what their rights are and what they should do next when they've run into issues with their tenancy? Yes, we have an advice line and it's fairly busy but most of the frontline work is done by the 20 tenants advice services around the state and we provide them with resources and backup legal advice and training and other support. Grant, before we let you go, you've covered a lot of really important information. 
where is a good place for people to go to look at these resources and, and find out what their rights are? The Tenants Union has a website. It's called tenants.org.au and it has about 30 fact sheets on tenancy issues plus a whole lot of sample letters and other resources. It also has a postcode engine at the bottom of every page where you can find your local tenants advice service, their hours and their contact details just by putting in your postcode. So that's really useful. And the most recent addition to our website is a thing called Rent Tracker, which is using bond board data to track rents in New South Wales. And it allows tenants to have a look at what rents for other premises in their area have been doing. Grant, I can only wish that I had had this conversation with you in the years when I was scrubbing black mould off a wall or trying not to have a ceiling fall on my head. So Grant Arbuthnot, Principal Solicitor of the Tenants Union of New South Wales, thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens, And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.